0: Hey everyone and welcome to another edition of the Snake Oilers podcast series my name is Patrick Gray and for those of you who are unfamiliar in these Snake Oilers editions we get sponsors to come along and pitch their stuff and that means everyone you hear in one of these editions of the show paid to be here and we're going to hear from three vendors in this edition Conductor One, Specter Ops and Zero Networks. So uh, Conductor One makes a product that uh, once they explain it you kind of think well Everyone needs that, and it's a little bit insane that it's not just something everyone has already. Uh, it's basically account lifecycle management, Pam, and uh, access auditing for cloud environments. SpecterOps is the company behind Bloodhound and Bloodhound Enterprise, and they make tools that can help you uh, remove the attack paths present in your organization by enumerating all of them out of your Active Directory and uh, Azure AD. And then showing you what you need to do to get rid of those attack parts. And look, hand on heart, in terms of bang for buck, uh, using Bloodhound Enterprise to tidy up your AD. Uh, you know, bang for buck terms, it's very hard to beat. So that's one you should definitely pay close attention to. And finally, today, we're going to hear from Zero Networks. And uh, they make a agentless micro segmentation product that can really tighten up your environment. Uh, And they also make a VPN product that integrates with your SSO provider. Uh, So it integrates your SSO provider with their VPN. And the idea is uh, that until a user is authenticated, they won't even be able to connect to the VPN's ports right and this is a very good thing when everyone is getting absolutely destroyed by stuff like Fortinet bugs and pulse secure bugs and whatnot uh, and this thing it's it's not an identity aware proxy right this is a wireguard style VPN but with a dynamic firewall, on it, instrumented via SSO. So if you're not ready for zero trust web apps everywhere and still need to use a VPN, this is a way to do it without getting Insta owned, right? And that's a lot of people. So uh, I think a lot of people are going to be interested in that one. Uh, But yeah, let's jump into it now with our first snake oiler of the day. And that is Conductor 1. So i got a question for you. Uh, how are you currently handling account life cycles and privileged access management for your cloud infrastructure and SaaS accounts? You know, would you say that's a smooth process? Because. Uh it's probably not. So, Conductor One is an identity security company that does privileged access management for cloud and SaaS accounts, as well as account lifecycle management and access auditing, which is very, very useful uh, in some, in a lot of compliance regimes. Right now, as you'll hear, you can hook it up into whatever directory you're using, including on-prem AD. So, if your processes for doing these sorts of things, like the account lifecycle management and the and the access auditing, if your processes for doing those sort of things really suck, uh, you you probably want to listen to this one. So here is uh, Conductor One co-founder Alex Beauvais, uh with the pitch.
1: So Conductor One is an identity security company focused on helping uh, companies secure employee access and permission. So you can think about um, getting visibility into all your identity-centric uh, threats and risks in the organization. So, you know, not non-off-ordered accounts, orphaned accounts, all the way through to automating the workflows around permission management, escalation, onboarding, offboarding. Uh, user access reviews and and like non-usage based revocation so making sure that people have just the right amount of access that they need and then removing that access when it's no longer needed.
0: Yeah, so you you're kind of blending a few things here, right? Which is all of the automations that are required to kind of run a business and 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 manage all of the identities that are associated with that business and you're also doing cloud PAM basically, right? So just-in-time access for things like AWS and, you know, all, all of those uh, cloud good things, right? And, and you're also doing like real-time permission twiddling and, you know, uh, boosting up those accounts to have the right privilege at the, time, at, at, at the right time. And, you know, so it's all those PAM concepts and identity management concepts, but for cloud.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And w- what we saw is that companies were, first of all, we, we saw this spectrum of like needing to onboard users and offboard users and the permission lifecycle is is all being this uh, kind of continuum of permission management and making sure that people had the right levels of access at the right time. I think there's like traditional categories that map into that. One is the privilege access management category that you talked about. The other is this category of identity governance and administration, but when you kind of just zoom out what you realize is that the goal and the purpose of those categories and the in the, the the business problems that those categories were are, are trying to solve for is to really make sure that um your users get the access they need when they need it and that you know people don't have permissions that are excessive and 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 really to, to try to get to that end goal of preventing identity compromise and and data loss um from like an identity-centric breach And so that's, we just realized that you really got to approach this problem from an automation perspective with cloud forward companies. It's really about integrating with all these different technologies. And if you can do that and you can scale it with like a really lovely user experience, you can help companies achieve at least privilege access and really automate a lot of those processes.
0: Now, it's probably worth mentioning that both you and your co-founder are ex-Octa. And it's funny, right? Because a lot of these good ideas come from people who are sitting in companies like that and they might want to spin up spin it up as a project internally and no one wants to and then they take it outside. Ironically enough, this is how Auth0 was created because the founder of Auth0 worked at Microsoft and then pitched it internally and they weren't interested. So off he went and, and built his own company. Was it a similar sort of story for you?
1: Yeah, you could say it's a pretty similar story, and and uh, so at the time at Okta, what I was working on is um, a lot around authentication and MFA in particular, and device where access. And what you realize is that that SSO problem primarily is focused on kind of like the the front gate, if you will, is kind yeah. of authenticating the user, the device, and making sure that it's the person who set, who they say that they are. The challenge is you've got this whole lifecycle post authentication. That, you know most people talk about in terms of authorization and permission management which is you know does a does user have access to the right applications first and foremost once they're in those applications do they have the right permissions um i like to think about kind of the privileged use case around engineers like do your en- does your engineering team need access to production infrastructure when they're asleep the answer is no so <laughs> how do you get more of like a just-in-time escalation type use case to escalate permissions and then remove them when they're no longer needed. And, th- and that's a really hard problem because it involves at scale, a lot of workflows and a lot of, um, you know, escalations and a lot of automation to do that really, really, really well. And you have to do it contextually. You have to do it in a way that that gives people the right uh, ability to, to make the right decisions. So that was really the, the problem that we wanted to focus on solving.
0: So um, how are people currently handling things like account life cycles? you know, with, with, you know, in combination with things like, you know, their, their cloud gear and their, and their SSO, like how, how is all of that stuff? How has it been glued together over the last sort of, you know, let's say decade?
1: So typically what we found is just a ton of manual processes. I mean, this is part of the reason we started the company too, is when we looked at it. I mean, this is
0: why I asked because like, this is, this is, you know, this is everybody's headache, right? So that's kind of why I asked like, what have people been doing in the interim?
1: Like when, when in, in early customer discovery processes, I would I would just ask, "Well, how are you doing this today?" And the answer almost all the time was Jira tickets and spreadsheets. Yeah. And so when you look at that, it's like, well, okay, clearly every single company in the world has to enable self service for employees to get additional applications or permissions they need to offboard users. They need visibility into all these different permissions and levels of access they're running user access reviews because almost every company has a SOC 2 these days so at a compliance level they're mandated to do these processes at some some level and so when i look at that and then i look at the status quo is effectively jira tickets and and um you know uh, manual processes and spreadsheets and like hacky python scripts that reach out to all these applications and try to pull permissions to me that just feels like a market that it's ripe for a better approach. And, and frankly, I think with the approach that we're taking, we really focused on the user experience of it as well to really just make it a, an enjoyable experience with a quick time to value so that, that, that employees want to use this product, even though it's a security product, it's also a productivity product. They want to use the product because it makes their lives better.
0: Yeah, now uh, you did hit on something just then, which is these audits, right? Like these uh, user access audits. I understand that you know this was one of the earlier features of your platform because you understood that people would give you money to take that pain away, right? So this is pretty much a button press thing with you once you're once you're up and running, right?
1: Absolutely. So one of the problems that we decided to focus on early on was to your point, user access review automation. And as you know, it, one of the challenges of that is this just broad set of integrations that you have to enable. So you've got to connect to all the critical SaaS and on-prem and infrastructure environments for a customer to be able to connect that technology in and pull in all the permissions and, and access and users. Once you can do that, and once you've set up a few of those integrations, then then running that process is dead simple. And what customers looked at is like, A, we have to do this from a compliance perspective. B, we really want to do this more frequently and more contextually to achieve a better security outcome around least privilege. And But trying to achieve that objective, it was not really possible without a lot of automation in place. And so what we did was take that process that they might be running from a manual perspective, maybe they, you know, take a couple of weeks to pull all the data out of their systems. They would plug it into like spreadsheets. They put it in the JIRA tickets. They'd federate things out to managers. We turn that into effectively like two clicks in our platform. So people absolutely love that. And because we can do it in real time and so contextually, you can actually get a better security outcome because you don't have to run user access reviews like once a year to just quote unquote maintain compliance. You can actually run it much more contextually to make sure that you're reducing privileges. For uh, for users and systems appropriately.
0: Now, what's the number one directory your customers are using? I'm guessing it's Azure AD. So it's about fifty fifty.
1: Well, we um, we see a lot of we see first of all all the cloud IDPs, and we have some customers that have just on prem Active Directory uh, as an IDP. So you're
0: integrating you're integrating with on prem AD. We do we do, and the
1: reason why is because. um, there's so many customers that have complex identity environments. So that was that was one of the things that we we started this company around. Is no, SM- I know, I
0: know. You do because you have to, but you shouldn't have to. It shouldn't be this way. But I get it, right? So you know, it's just really weird when you think about on-prem AD being used as a repository or source of information about who could be trusted to do what in the cloud but i mean it's just this is just how babby is made isn't
1: it you you would you would be amazed so there's so many companies though that are on that like digital transformation journey but they're on like step 2 of step 10 and so what that means is they still have an active directory on prem they're using a cloud IDP at some level, but maybe it's to like SSO into a handful of cloud applications. Yeah, and there's a synchronization And there's a whatever, synchronization. If you yeah. want
0: to modify something, you have to start at the on-prem. Because to really, yeah.
1: truly secure identity, you need that full picture. This is one of the things you have to embrace is that identity is inherently complex and messy, and customers have multiple directories and they have an HR system, and you have to kind of combobulate all that data and that visibility across all, of those, um, all those environments.
0: Yeah, yeah. So one thing that's interesting there, though, is that you mentioned the IDPs directories, because they have some sim- simpler ones, right? Um, you know, I always wondered if they're actually getting much traction. Sounds like finally they are.
1: I think cloud IDPs are particular, but I think cloud IDPs have mostly been um, valuable to enable the adoption of SSO and cloud applications. Well, that's, that's like,
0: kind of what I mean, is when I think of an IDP's directory, I just think of like, you know, a pretty simple one that is that allows you to buy their main product, which is their SSO. Like, I don't think right. of them as being like gold standard directory providers or whatever, right? That's going to be... Yeah, there are,
1: well, there are a handful of companies that I think were cloud first and always, right? And those companies, if you were cloud first and always, you you probably uh, adopted a cloud IDP, and that might actually be your source of truth, whether that's Google Workspace or Okta or Jump Cloud or a solution like that or OneLogin. But there are a lot of companies out there that are Azure AD and on-prem AD, or you know, using some sort of a hybrid environment, or or have an LDAP for controlling infrastructure access that they've deployed in their own. You know, there's just all these complex models around identity um, from the HR system to the directory, to the authorization systems. And you really have to have that that full view of it.
0: Now, I guess uh, also, when I think about competition for you, it's gonna mostly be coming from some of the established Pam vendors who are trying to push into the cloud space. I'm guessing that's where competition is going to come from for you.
1: We see a little bit of both. It's some of the it's some of the Pam vendors that are trying to reinvent uh, a cloud centric solution, recognizing that Pam in the cloud is different than traditional Pam. It's also a lot of the traditional IGA vendors that are trying to innovate and also uh, adopt. Um, and, and deploy IGA-centric solutions for more cloud-forward companies because you know the, those solutions, I think really, I mean, I can get into existential of it, but I, I think at the end of the day, it's like all kind of one solution. That's our view. <laughs> but, yes, uh,
0: yes. Yeah. Uh, I'm guessing anyone listening to this knows by now whether this is a product they want to investigate, so we'll wrap it up there. So Alex bovy thank you very much for joining us on Snake Oilers to walk us through Conductor 1. Very interesting stuff.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it.
0: That was Alex Bovey there from Conductor One. Big thanks to him for that. Links, of course, to everyone uh, in the show notes to all of the vendors uh, that are featured on this podcast. Now we are going to hear from SpectorOps, the company behind Bloodhound Enterprise. So I'm going to stick with the question format for this introduction as well. So here we go. What's the state of your Active Directory? Uh, Is it properly configured? Or are there misconfigured group policy objects lurking in it that any user can modify and use to take over your domain controller? You know, no? Well, how do you know that? Now, Bloodhound is an open-source tool made by SpecterOps uh, that first gained popularity with penetration testers as a way to enumerate attack paths in Windows networks that would take you—that uh, would take them, sorry, the pen testers from where they landed, which would usually be a workstation, to where they want to be, right? Which is your your crown jewels. Now, obviously, defenders have also figured out that enumerating attack paths is quite useful to them because they can start closing off those attack paths. So, SpecterOps developed a more powerful enterprise version of Bloodhound for defenders, and that's what we're talking about in this interview with Justin Kohler, the vice president of products at SpecterOps, and he starts off here by explaining what a typical attack path actually looks like, and here he is.
2: Yeah, so a uh, common attack path might be we get, like, initial access is is gained on some user, and then they have rights onto a machine, and that, that user may have, like, let's say, local admin or some other rights on that machine. Um, so we can escalate privilege through that we can also see where that user has rights elsewhere in the company and let's say that that user has rights over a server in a different portion of the environment so we'll pivot over to that server that server may have an admin logged in we could dump the credentials we could inject into a process we don't even need the password at that point and just move on so it's theoretically very easy uh well not even theoretically we just prove this all the time uh to take our initial access and turn it into something much greater because of overprivileged and bad um administrator behavior where they don't understand that they're opening a lot of risk because of that um kind of their daily management tasks this problem is massive right you might have millions of attack paths and people can feel overwhelmed what we do is help them break that down into bite-sized chunks that they can remove very specifically and 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 see the results of that um Like how are they reducing their overall risk? Um, we measure that based on the exposure within the domain or how many users have a path to your most critical assets. You can actually see that reduce over time. And that's actually one of the most fun things to do with a customer is, you know, after we talk them off the ledge to a certain extent, when we first deploy is show them how they will be able to cut that risk down over time with very specific actions.
0: Now, that was going to be my next question. Uh, well, yeah. first of all, tell me what, you know, and I'm guessing what you will say is the experience for an attacker landing in an environment which is better managed uh, as a result of these sorts of exercises is they just won't be able to get those easy wins.
2: Exactly. I mean, one of our uh, our favorite things to do, uh, you know, we, when we originally created this, our first customers were our old penetration testing customers. And so we deployed Bloodhound Enterprise and then, you know, they would ask our consulting team to come back in for a penetration exercise a penetration testing exercise the next year and gosh i i can't tell you how good those tears taste uh from our (laughs) consulting counterparts when they wouldn't be able to reach their objective right because we've removed that the those avenues that they could use to take the following pen
0: pen tester tears seem to be the most coveted substance in the you know defensive security uh (laughs) landscape these days because it's something i often hear from vendors which is we stopped pen testers and we made them mad you know it's just it's the it's the new hotness
2: uh yeah i mean it (laughs) uh we go back and forth quite a lot and i'm very good um very good friends with my my services counterpart in Spectre Ops, but um, I will say, you know, that's a very clear indication if we are successful. It's kind of hard to prove a negative. Um, if you weren't mm. breached this year versus last year, if you do regular penetration tests and you do markedly better because of the actions that you've taken, that is a very clear example of you know uh, how much cleaner we've made the environment.
0: You know, you've spoken about how you can help people remediate, you know, do remediation over time in bite sized chunks and make it easy. Like, what yes. would be a typical, you know, list of give me, you know, give me three example uh, changes that Bloodhound Enterprise might recommend, you know, when you run it uh, as a, you know, a, a, a the first time, right? Like, what are three things that it's going to tell um, an organization to do to start paring back that risk? Just to give people a, an idea of like, how difficult this is going to be because I think, you know, some security tooling, um, it might recommend that you do something very difficult or something quite exotic, you know, whereas you're you're saying um, that the sorts of things this thing is going to ask you to do won't be like some monumental challenge like, oh, you need to remove local admin from everything. And that's step no,
2: one. No, you no, no, no. Or dis- disable SMB, you know, the SMB V1 from the environment or something yeah. like that. Like you should, or NTLM, right? Not stuff like that. So what we're talking about is, uh, let's, say, um, let's say you have a group policy object that applies through the inheritance structure of Active Directory and randomly applies to a server. Um, and that server is part of tier zero. It's not a domain controller, but it's part of your tier zero. So what like an example of this could be your Azure sync server that's contained in a random OU within AD and you have a GPO that is controlled by users, um, that they could affect that server. Um, and that, that could be extremely detrimental. I mean, you can, you can DC sync against the directory and basically do whatever you well,
0: want. Well, that's, that's the whole network right there. Right, right? that's
2: the entire, yeah, yeah, you can do whatever you want, right? So you want to protect that asset. Well, a lot of people don't understand how their group policy applies. And so we have, we find all the time, like uh, I've, we did this a couple of weeks ago, where authenticated users had um, generic all over that, a, a group policy that did exactly that. So that is a very clear misconfiguration. First of all, authenticated users should never have it any right like that anywhere in Active Directory. That is basically everyone in the forest that authenticates to it. Anybody Anywhere where they have that kind of access, like, again, just to be very clear, somebody in some random subsidiary could make a change to that group policy object and take over that asset. So that is very, very, like, we make those changes in customer environments in, like, in a discussion. Like, when we first deploy, they will fix that. In thirty minutes, it, it's yeah. not monumental. It is remove that right. That is a bit, very clear example of oh wow, that was really bad, um, and it, it, it's instant. It's not re. I mean, I mean, how Iraqis else Iraqis are people
0: accurate. finding issues like that? Because I'm guessing <laughs> that sort of stuff, it's just so buried that unless you've got tooling to dig it up, I mean, people just aren't finding it.
2: They don't. I mean, that's the that's so. <sighs> we've deployed in so many environments and I can't tell you how clear it is when, when we deploy and we just show people exactly it's eye opening. Some people can articulate this. You know, I would say to your listeners, maybe you know that this problem exists or you feel that this problem exists, but you can't articulate where it's coming from. Like you can't articulate what risk active directory is posing in your environment or Azure is posing in your environment. You know that people are overprivileged we can give you that visibility instantly and show you how you can fix it with very specific remediations. So like, like again, I mentioned it, we kind of talk people off the ledge. When we first deploy, it is like a Christmas tree of like 20 years of misconfiguration debt. Now that doesn't mean that it's going to take 20 years to fix it. Again, we can chop off so much risk instantly just by those like very, very small changes that have massive impact. But like you said, they're so buried that... Unless you're doing what we're doing, you're never going to find them. Um, you simply can't find them with ADUC or, or the built-in like, um, visibility tools that, that Microsoft or, or whatever directory systems have.
0: So who is buying this in an organization? Who is the buyer? Because you know, I'm guessing it's got to be some sort of team who's responsible for the AD or is it the security teams? Like, Who is actually doing this?
2: So the, the security teams are like some, you know, if you're one of the few companies that has an internal red team, they understand the need, right? They, they've either been on the receiving end of a penetration test. They've done it internally for themselves. They understand where the problem is coming from and they're, they're, they're uh, struggling to articulate how bad that is. But our ultimate buyer is like a, a security, like a director or risk manager, They understand that they have to manage risk across the business. Now who fixes it? It's at the Active Directory team or the Azure administrators. And sometimes it's the workstation admins, right? You could have the uh, domain users group added into the local admins group of a random computer. That's a workstation administrative uh, uh, fix. That's not the Active Directory team. So to answer your direct question, it's somebody who's charged with risk in the company, uh, but the fixes might be farmed out across multiple teams.
0: Now, look, we don't normally talk about pricing in these segments because, you know, it's, it's typically when you ask a vendor about pricing, it's, it's kind of like, how long is a piece of string? I mean, to a degree, <laughs> it's kind of the same with uh, Bloodhound Enterprise, but I figure it's perhaps worth talking a bit about the pricing because, you know, bang for buck, it seems pretty good. What can you tell people about how this is priced and what it will cost for a typical enterprise?
2: So a typical enterprise, um, we start out around $20,000 per year. So we're not very like for the hundreds of customers or like uh, companies with the hundreds of people yet, we do have plans in, in solving that I'd say the average enterprise, like large enterprise customer with 50 to a hundred thousand is somewhere in between a dollars and $300,000 per year. Um. But that's like, I mean, you're- I mean, you're that's a mega up. enterprise, right? And and that that's, is yeah. loose yeah, That yeah. is
0: loose change for a security budget for a company of that size.
2: Yeah, it, it, I would say it's the best bang for your buck in terms of lateral movement. Like this is the easiest thing that people abuse today in terms of like taking over your environment. I mean, it is like there's so many paths and, and uh, addressing this is gonna make all of your other security investments much more effective. Um, otherwise, you're just gonna be getting alerts kind of from everywhere. So,
0: well, and speaking will... of that is like the, the sort of force multiplier thing, right? Like I hate that I'm unironically using those two words together, but, <laughs> um, but I would imagine that this would make user event-based detection, uh, actually more effective because you are going to be cutting out a lot of noise, right? And, and things that, you know, that, the, the dodgy things are going to be clearly more dodgy.
2: Yeah. Y- yes, very much so. So like Active Directory, t- from our perspective, Active Directory is like a, uh, there's not even a door. There's not even hinge for a door to go on. Like it is that open, right? You're trying to monitor events that, that like, there is no door to walk through. It's just completely open right now. So wh- why would you even try to triage alerts? Like there's millions of different paths. You have to make that make uh, be a sane problem to answer. That's why we allow you to like cut those down and people p- put monitoring on the paths that, you know, they haven't gotten to yet. Um, or the remnants of paths that they um, they may like. They, there's accepted amounts of risk, right? Like let's let's give I you. I mean, a for you example. cannot
0: have a risk-free active directory. Like,
2: uh, n- well, you- I will say that we've gotten people down to zero percent. Like that is an achievable bar. Zero people in your environment that have a, an attack path to any tier zero or domain controller or domain admins or global admins or the tenant object itself in Azure. There are zero paths. That is a bar that our customers clear, which is pretty cool.
0: All right. Well, Justin Kohler, thank you so much for joining us um, and ending that pitch on the on the mic drop moment. <laughs> pleasure to chat to you and all the best with it. Thank you. That was Justin Kohler of Specdrops. there. The product is Bloodhound Enterprise and uh, yes, solid endorse on that one. It is time for our third and final snake oiler for today, and that is Zero Networks. In essence, Zero Networks is a micro segmentation play, uh, but it has a couple of differences. So firstly, you can deploy Zero Networks without an agent, which will be wonderful news to a bunch of you out there. Um, It does micro segmentation magic with the existing firewalls your computers already have. So the idea is, if a workstation on your network wants to connect to a funny port, well, it can't, unless that user passes an authentication challenge via your SSO provider. They've worked pretty hard on making this easy to spin up. the other micro segmentation tools out there wind up being shelfware because uh, it can just be tricky to use and I'm sure uh, some of you listening to this would be would be nodding along to that. So I'm going to talk about that with Zero Networks founder Benny Lakunashok uh, in just a moment and we're also going to talk about their other product uh, that they call a zero trust network access solution but really it's a VPN right and what makes it 0 trustish though Uh, is that it's a VPN at your network edge that doesn't have any open ports on it. When users sign on via Okta or whatever, Zero Networks will then add a temporary firewall rule to that VPN device that will allow the user to connect to it from wherever they are, right? Whether they work from home or on the road or whatever. So this means you can have a VPN at your network edge that only authenticated users can connect to. Now, obviously, this is extremely useful considering how many enterprises are getting owned by exploits in VPN concentrators, uh, let alone brute force attacks and whatnot. But yeah, here is Zero Networks founder, Benny Lakunashok to tell us all about Zero Networks. Enjoy.
3: So we can essentially remotely control the host-based firewall of every machine as well as various OT devices and automate what needs to remain open and then automatically close everything else in a very unique and deterministic and accurate way to don't break stuff uh, while segmenting literally 99% of the things that are otherwise open. We do this agentlessly, so we don't need any agents, and yet we still can manage to uh, take almost 100% of assets an organization owns, client servers, on-prem cloud, OT devices, and segment them. And On top of that, we also, and one of our coolest features is to mfa enable stuff. So, and that's patented. So we take your MFA of choice, and we make that now at the network layer, by default only to privilege ports or protocols, like RDP, SSH, WinRM, stuff like that, that attackers love and only IT likes, and make that MFA. So that port is always closed, let's say the RDP port. It is open temporarily, only after you MFA. So MFA enablement as well. By default, it's for the privileged stuff. You can in a click also enhance that to any port you want, port one 2, three, four, with application X. Now is MFA enabled. The application is not aware of it. You don't need agents, and you just get MFA. Right? Segmentation essentially.
0: So essentially this is micro segmentation, but you're using the firewalls that people already have because everything already has a firewall in it these days. I mean, that's basically the pitch, right? And you've built like a control plane for all of these zillions of little firewalls that organizations have already.
3: 100%.
0: Yeah, so who do you compete with? Because, you know, we think of others who uh, offer micro segmentation products. Like how are you different from what's out there in
3: the market already? We're very much different than the other vendors in that space because the number one is that you require a lot of people and time to segment with them. Humans own the segmentation process. You need to see what's going on, so you need to own the, the process of the rule creation, own it, flip a switch, pray you don't break something, rinse and repeat for per amount of machines you own. That's not a scalable process. Second, you need an agent with them, and third, it's static. There is no dynamic based on MFA, based on temporarily giving someone access. It's either open or closed, or RDP will just be open to you know, a bunch of people instead of being all closed. So those are the three differences. We fully automate, we are agentless because we use what's there, and we have MFA enablement. So those are three big things that we are very different Okay,
0: now you've got another product line, which is around SaaS zero trust network access. Tell us about that.
3: So we want to be, again, the network one-stop shop for network security. There are two big pillars to do that, segmentation, and there's also connectivity. So we've created two products. By the way, they are both in one UI, one platform. So it's really, really cool for the people managing them. It's much easier than traditional stuff. But essentially, the second product, so the first product is segment, and now we have Connect, a connectivity solution. It's essentially a VPN-ZTNA-SASI hybrid, where there are bad things about ZTNA and good things. ZTNA, for those who don't know, is the Zero Trust Network Access. It's the VPN replacement. It's essentially tunneling through someone's cloud without having a VPN port open on the internet. That's the bad, one of the biggest bad things about uh, the VPN. Well, people can hack it. Like, I think a month ago, there was a 40, you know, oh, yeah, our, our
0: listeners are well familiar with the uh, trials and tribulations of running Fortinet at the edge and Pulse Secure and all of the others, right?
3: Yeah. yeah. I mean, all of them, all of them, all of VPN servers, because it's like on average two, three million lines of code, they will have a bug once a year, statistically, each vendor, and it will have a vulnerability. And if you don't patch immediately, someone can get in. So that's the biggest problem. So the zero trust model is essentially no zero trust, by the way, by definition, which is a word I hate, although it's right here on the logo, zero. Uh, it's port not open. It won't be open maybe later, maybe te- you know temporarily, whatever, right? So the ZTNA model for the external connections says no ports open. You tunnel through someone's cloud. Now that's the good aspect of the security, but the bad is that first of all, it's more expensive because that vendor who is paying for that cloud Guess what, you're paying, not them. So it's more expensive and cloud networking is expensive. Second, the performance usually sucks because you're tunneling and then getting back potentially, or there are different scenarios there. So the experience is bad, the bandwidth is lower. And lastly, it's a NAT device. Uh, and usually that means you know, ta- 1000 users connecting, they all appear to come from one IP address inside. So all of your internal detection solutions and EDRs and whatnot, they are not blinded and creating either false, positive, or just missing stuff because it's all coming from one IP. So what we've created is made a hybrid of that. We, we have the direct connectivity, but the port, like segment, is always closed. You no know one on the internet sees that. So your stuff sort of
0: acts as a port opening broker, right? So you authenticate, port pops open, bang, you're authenticated, you connect to it, off you go. And then you could use what, like a normal VPN through that port?
3: It's our VPN wrapper around WireGuard, which is the fastest, most secure open source peer-to-peer technology out there today. So we didn't have to develop the tunnel itself. That's all code based on WireGuard. But we wrap around it. As you said, after MFA, device attestation, and yada, 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 we open the port only for you to connect. And then you have the benefits of direct connectivity, lower cost, much better performance, and the benefit of the zero trust, where the port is never open to anyone, only to those that have the MFA and... other well, how do you well? do
0: that? How do you do that? Th- and we're going to get sidetracked for a moment here, but I'm just curious, right? So once I've authenticated to your port opening, broking thing, right? Like it pops open that port. How does it pop open that port just for me? Does it create like a rule that that port's only open for my originating IP? Is that how it works?
3: That's exactly what we do. We use um. IP tables. Again, we don't want to reinvent the wheel. We use what's there. There is IP tables there. It's a Linux, very small thin virtual appliance by Linux. So those IP tables blocking everything. And it's only open to a specific IP set. And we add your public IP IP set so that now you can do that, right? Yeah, I mean, I gotta
0: say, Benny, like this is something that people need right now, right? Which is a replace. And so it's, and, and then once that off process is done, the user's auth- authenticated, they just have the typical experience of a normal VPN usage. Yeah. They don't know.
3: Yeah. For them, for their experience, they just connect. All of this is orchestrated in a second, essentially. And then they just connect directly. They don't even know what's going on, but that's behind the scenes what's yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean,
0: that certainly solves the Fortinet problem. And um, that's interesting because that's one we've been talking about a lot on the show about how that's a very difficult problem to solve. So well done. And I will find it very, very funny if this becomes your most successful business line uh, because it's probably the least impressive thing uh, that, that you do.
3: But that's life, you know. (laughs)
0: That's life, exactly. Uh, Look, just going back to the the micro-segmentation stuff, you know, I'm guessing the primary use case for something like that is to make lateral movement through, uh, you know, the post-compromise phase in an enterprise network to make that a lot harder. Now, I know there's multiple use cases for this sort of thing, but I'm guessing that is the primary use case. Is that accurate?
3: That's very accurate. Uh, It's that, stopping ransomware, stopping a pen tester. We stop pen testers left and right. We get, that's the fun... The most fun part of my week, usually it's every week now, I get an email from a customer or a potential in a POC. Hey, like, I could not pen test DCDR versus DCDR to see the differences because the pen test couldn't do anything. I had to turn you guys off so that I can actually pen test, right? So passing pen tests, which is essentially stopping an attack, right? Uh, There's another one. There's a lot of zero trust initiatives. And zero trust usually means... Microsegmentation and a ZTNA project both combine, give you true zero trust, both internally and externally. So th- th- those initiatives for zero trust is also getting fulfilled with both solutions. Some start more with the ZTNA because it's just easier, and then others start with micro-segmentation.
0: So where does your software live? Is this offered as a cloud service and you have some sort of connector that you have to deploy locally? Like what's the actual deployment model for zero networks?
3: Yeah, so it's a SaaS solution. Uh, most of the brains is in the cloud. There is a virtual appliance that you deploy on-prem. It can be multiple for scale and high availability, and uh, they are f- essentially they they are the ones remotely managing host-based firewalls of clients and servers. Uh, so also your cloud a, 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 tells
0: the on-prem thing what to connect to and what to do.
3: Yes, there is also an agent yeah. version for some use cases, so you can have a hybrid, let's say agentless with the virtual appliance for some, and then agent for others, maybe some laptops for specific scenarios. You can have virtual appliance for everything agentless, like uh, it's a mix potentially.
0: All right, Benny Lukunashock, thank you so much for joining me to talk through Zero Networks again, because we've done this once before, not not recorded. Uh, Very interesting stuff. I wish you all the best with it. I'm sure there's a bunch of listeners who found that very interesting. Cheers. Thank you. That was Benny Shock there from Zero Networks. Big thanks to him for that. And that is it for this edition of Snake Oilers. I do hope you enjoyed it. We'll be running part two of this round of Oilers in a couple of weeks. And uh, I will, of course, be back next week with more risky business news and analysis. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.